former U.S. National Rugby Team captain. Team captain. Head coach and general manager. General manager. Now, the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now. Now. Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Hey everyone, thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Joining me today is all rugby legend, TV commentator, businessman, gardener, restaurateur, you know, the World Rugby Hall of Famer, dubbed the Raging Potato, loves a good grubber, first ever player of the year, Irish sensation, epic golfer, a good family man, and just a great human. Keith Wood, thanks for joining us today. Alex, a great pleasure. I'm going to add a preface to that. I'm a has-been for most of those, but that's okay. I think that's acceptable. As long, yeah. as, long as one of them keeps going, you're good. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> good man. We're going to start with a little bit of word game to warm up. I'm going to say a word and just say the first thing that comes to comes to mind. Okay, this could be very dangerous. Yes, it could uh, be. My mind is a small bit odd, as you, you <laughs> yes, do know. Yes, so. yes, which I appreciate. Lions. Tigers. And bears. Uh, Uncle Fester. Uh, Adam's family. <laughs> well put. The front row. Uh, club. Killaloo. Uh, pure home. Gardening. Uh, restorative. Tries. Uh, Fifteen. <laughs> didn't didn't Joe Tafetti or uh, our guy? Didn't Joe just? Uh, uh, I, I'm trying. I didn't say anything about it. I just yeah, na- yeah, I just yeah. named the number. Yes, Joe did. I think. Yeah, yeah he's yeah, passed yeah. me out. Yeah, that's great. Meat pies. Uh, no, no. Uh, no. Grub- grubbers. Uh, always. Always. The future. Uh, Spock. Love it. So, a bit about your past for our audience. You were born and raised in Killaloo. Killaloo County Clare, which is where I am at the present moment in time. I um, uh, It's a tiny little village in the west of Ireland, used to be capital of Ireland a thousand years ago. So that's kind of cool when you go looking at yeah. things like that for history when you speak in thousands. Um, um, it is, uh, it's a great place. And um, I went to school, I played hurling here which for um, American fans is truly crazy sport. Most sports is now becoming crazy, but this was crazy long before anybody else. Um, what is uh, hurling to the American audience? Like uh, hurling is like, hurling and ice hockey are the two fastest field sports, um, yeah. if you call ice hockey a field sport. But um, uh, so you play with, it's a, a stick that's three feet long, but is broad like the palm of your hand at the end. Um, you can score a goal or you can sport, score a point over the bar. The pitch is uh, about 140 meters long, so much bigger than an American football pitch or right. a rugby pitch. The game is unbelievably fast. 15 aside, you play with a ball very similar to a baseball, but lighter. Um, it's incredibly skillful. Um, it is a game that encourages bravery because yes. if you shy away, you get hit at the end of this stick. And there are an awful lot of rules, uh, most of which are ignored. Um, <laughs> but in terms of a game, I played it when I was a kid um, and I played a bit of county hurling underage. Um, it's my favorite game to watch. 
And it was my favorite game to play, actually. It's just a game of pure skill. And I was small when I was younger. And as soon as I started getting bigger, it's it was a game I shouldn't really play because it's all about agility and being able to turn on a... On a, on a, on a oh, on you a, showed some game. evasive running for a hooker out there in your day. I, yeah, I did. Uh, I, I would accept that fact, yeah. but no, you need to be incredibly evasive. I, yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't. But so I played that. And I loved it. I went to a rugby school, St. Munchen's College, which was um, a great school. Um, uh, my three sons are in that school at the moment. My father played rugby for Ireland, played for the Lions right. as well, which means we. I grew up in a rugby household. But no, no um, pressure to your three boys. <laughs> no, I, I tell you, I introduced them, uh, the three boys, to Sid Miller, and Sid was the former uh, world the, rugby the, chair. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. and and Sid, prop uh, or something, wasn't he? Legendary prop, yeah. and uh, he propped on the lines on the other side of the scrum with my father in 1959. Oh, oh wow! Okay, in New Zealand. So I introduced. I I said, Alexander, Gordon, Tom, this is Sid. Uh, and um, Sid said, uh, your father played for the Lions. Your grandfather played for the Lions. No pressure, boys. <laughs> exactly. So the boys, boys were small at the time, looking up at this yeah. giant. And he is a, he's a big man, so yeah, he's yeah, a giant yeah. of a man. So yeah. they play and they love it, actually. And uh, Munchens is a, has a very proud um, pedigree as, as, a, as a school and from the present Irish setup that's in there uh, Conor Murray and Keith Earls uh, both went to Munchens so. Oh wow and does that feed up then through Munster and then Absolutely so we, we would have a I don't know how many teams there's an A school system in Ireland there may be in the region of, of 20 teams I think uh, the vast majority are in Dublin there's a couple in Cork there's three or four in Limerick a few scattered around the country a few in the north Um and they all filter into an academy system into the provinces. And how did you get, so you were there, how did you get there? You ended up, like, was it through Ireland? Like, you, did you go through the Munster system? Did you, how did you uh, end up with the Quins? And, like, there was, like, amateur era. Yeah. Time that... It was it was funny. I had I was playing um, soccer, as you'd call it, and very. I'd left school, and I liked rugby, and I was okay at it, but I wasn't great at it. And I was just beginning to grow, so I was I was short, and then suddenly I was six feet tall, and uh, I'm heavy boned, which is a nice thing to say. I always think the front row. So I was at seventeen or eighteen years of age. I was fourteen and a half, fifteen, two hundred pounds, two hundred and ten pounds, yeah. which is a big a big weight yeah. for a young fellow, but very fit. And uh, suddenly I moved in because I started off scrum half, out half. Um, so then I moved really? into the yeah. So I moved into the front no row. You spent the rest of your career trying to get back out there. <laughs> well, I look. I think I think, uh, I, think the num- I, I don't think the numbers mean anything really. <laughs> yeah. You know. So, um, but I I went and I I joined Gary Owen, which is a very famous club um, uh, set up in eighteen eighty four. Great senior club. So at that stage, the provinces you you might play three or four times a year, but the main game was the club game. So we were playing club matches in 1991, 92 with 16, 17,000 people at the matches, you know, yeah. which was which was crazy stuff really. We played and, we brought over when I was at university here, Dartmouth kind of perennial Ivy League champs. We went on a spring tour and played Gary Owen the spring of 99. And then I brought the team back as when I was head coach in 2003. And that's even then you could just see the changes in the club in those four years and kind of the club game in Ireland. Um, 
Yeah, it had, it had drawn away from the yeah. club and gone yeah. to the provinces. So um, I went there and it was it was amazing. My first coach, like every time you talk to any sportsman, they're always going to talk about a coach because um, you could have pedigree, skills, physique, whatever, but you're, somebody needs to kind of um, uh, set light to the paper. Um, my coach was a guy who, 1989, right? So I'm 17 years of age, a guy called Paddy Reed. Paddy had played for Ireland and won a Grand Slam in 1948. He went and played rugby league in Huddersfield in, in Yorkshire. And because he did, he got a 40-year ban from rugby from union. Rugby. And his ban was up in 1989. So you couldn't go play rugby league back then? No, you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't do anything that would draw money in. It was so entirely amateur. And it was when I started, it was amateur. Yeah. And, and, right. um, and so I worked. Well, let's and, say you were a really good skier or something and you went on the professional skiing circuit or tennis circuit and you were a player as well. You yeah, there was, there was huge issues. You couldn't get paid for writing an article. You couldn't write an article in the newspaper or there was a whole load of things. It was very, but he got a 40 year ban, which it doesn't matter. You know, uh, that's just fantastically crazy. So, yes. um, uh, so he was a bitter man actually, yeah. but he also was gifted. So he, he, um, he coached under an assumed name. Everybody knew who he was. It was a kind of Irish solution to an Irish problem and everybody knew who he was, but they wanted him involved. And it, like Ireland had only won uh, one grand slam in its history until 2009 and Brian O'Driscoll's team. Yeah. So, um, but he was, all he wanted was to run, run with the ball. He didn't care what number you had in your back, actually. He said, go for it. Like, if you're able to do it, why don't you do it? And he encouraged us to practice every skill, all the skills, do whatever you possibly could. So what I ended up doing was um, I played after about two years playing under 20. Like the second year playing under 20, I started playing for the senior team. And we had a couple of um, British and Irish Lions players. We had four or five international players. I was a young guy, 19, 20. We had an all-black. And this was a Gary uh, Playing Owen. in the second row, a Gary Owen. And um, I would play for the senior team on the Saturday. Uh, and I'd play hooker. And then I'd play in the under-20 team on the Sunday. And I'd play open side. So it was it was just interesting. You just play huge amounts yeah. of rugby, but it was an amateur game and it was fantastic. And um, I loved every bit of it, and I had a lot of fun with it. Um, and then um, I I got into the Ireland squad. Like I had no expectation to get in there. I I got in the Munster under twenty side. I sat in the bench for Munster. Uh, I hadn't played for Munster, and I sat in the bench for Ireland. And uh, then I got picked. I actually got picked for Ireland. Um, before uh, actually, but before playing a proper game from from for Monster, I played a, I played one of those three twenty minute games that you might play against somebody at the very start of a season. But I hadn't played a proper match for for Monster, and um, and I got picked for Ireland, and I had a couple of big injuries already at that stage. But then, and I was working in the bank and had a really good job, and uh, I was loving what I was doing. I mean, life wait, was wait, fantastic. You were like, you were going to the bank each day, working as a teller, working as an analyst, and then like and at night. Absolutely, training at night time, and so playing for Ireland, I would take a half day from work on a Wednesday, 
and we'd meet up. I'd go to Dublin and we'd meet up and then we'd play on Saturday and we'd train for a day and a half. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just how much has changed that quickly. You know, I do a fitness test on Thursday to see. Look, listen, we did. We we lost against Italy once in 97 and we did four hours. We did a warm weather weather training session in Portugal where it rained the whole time. It wasn't warm. It was bloody freezing. Uh, we trained four hours Monday, four hours Tuesday, a full battery fitness test Wednesday, two hours training Wednesday afternoon, two more hours on Thursday, um, flew back to Ireland, played Italy, where none of us, we just walked around the field. Yeah, we couldn't, yeah. we were absolutely shot. Broken. So, yeah. um, That's where more but, is better, more is better. That was the whole mantra, yeah. But it, it became very interesting because we ended up, I remember... Um, we had a coach in Harlequin. I went, the game went professional. I was injured in the World Cup in 95. Um, uh, I had a really, I got a really good job because I wasn't going to be playing as much rugby. And then the, I had a big surgery on my shoulder. I was out for about 14 months. And uh, I got a couple of offers and I decided to go to Quinns. And uh, Ireland hadn't organized its professional contracts yet. Um, they hadn't quite got their head around what the hell was going to go on. And I said, look, I'm ready to go. And they said, we don't think you should go. I said, you might give me a contract. Limer- they said, Limerick to London. That's a big jump. <laughs> I tell you what, it, like it's a really big jump. Yeah. And I didn't want to go. Yeah. That was the other thing. Um, I'm I'm not a country bumpkin, but I'm a, there's a bit of that definitely. Yeah. And, um, and I went to London. I signed a three-year deal. And the reason for signing a three-year deal was because I um, I knew I'd hate it, and I said it would force me to stay there. So that was my slightly <laughs> mad rationale. He's a young man. Yeah. So um, so I decided to to do. And after about six weeks, I said, "My God, this is the best place." And I and I lived in London pretty much uh, for about fourteen years. Um, I I love the place, I, and I have to say I miss it in lockdown. I miss it a lot. Who was so the I'm, coach at the time of the Quins? The coach at the time of Quins was Dick Best. Dick Best, who became the agent. Uh, who became the agent? Who yeah. was a he'd been an England coach and a Lions assistant assistant coach, and he like it was very funny because we were all trying to see could we work could we um, could we I was going to do a degree course in in at the same time and then I didn't have the time to do it and some of the guys wanted to still work in the city and I was then thinking will I go and get a job in the city and I'd set up a PR company and it was I was kind of we're spinning a few plates at the same yeah. time because we didn't really know what it was that was going on and um, and then he thought we could train an awful lot more than the two hours a day we could probably get seven or eight hours in well you could and but you can't do anything at the weekend yeah. and we were actually playing Wednesday Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday. There was a competition on the Wednesday. So I remember we did, I said, I'm, I said, I'm not going to play this competition in the middle. I was, um, I'm not shy of a few words. So I was quite comfortable to fight my corner. And I said, I'm not playing in this midweek competition. It's rubbish. And they said, no, you have to. And I said, well, if I do, the main competition is the one that's on Saturdays. This is a, a cup competition that doesn't mean anything. Which is, by the way, so foreign to us in American sports, like the idea that you're competing in two different competitions at the same time. And and we yeah. we could be competing in four at the same yeah. time. So, the, and so it is tricky that way. So eventually we, I had an argument with the coach and I said, if I play three matches in eight days... I'll sprint on the first day. 
I'll jog on the second day and I'll walk on the third day. I said, that's the way it goes. And I remember we're having this argument, you know, and it wasn't an argument because he agreed. Yeah. But like these are all the, like we had no idea what the body could take. Yeah. Um, we had no idea that if you were professional, we're professional because we're getting paid. We weren't professional because of attitude. Yeah. And we did have an international attitude and a high high performance attitude, but I was trying to figure out where all these things intersected. And it took three or four years to kind of figure out what the hell was going on. And I, it was a really interesting time. I mean, inc- work incredibly hard, Work hard, play hard kind of mentality, wasn't it? There was a, there was a fair bit of that too, but I would have equally said that we our view would have been because we were all workers, so the idea of uh, we were all workers who who were amateur rugby players and were getting paid for it. So we would work Monday to Friday. We'd play the match on Saturday and we'd go out on Saturday night. That was it. Yeah. Rest Sunday, back to work Monday. That was the mindset for everybody. Yeah. So it wasn't as if it was play hard for three or four days. It wasn't. It was a. Right. It was a, It was. It was. Inter- it was interesting, you know, and it was. I mean, it was a fantastic time. You know, you're you're 24 or 5 in London, you know, and it's it's just, it was great. And so we had a huge amount of fun. There was a mad mixture. That Quinn's team had nine international captains wow. in the 15, which, which is kind of ludicrous, actually. Yeah. It's, that's definitely too many Chiefs. And um, so trying to get any decision... Uh, consensus was difficult to come by with so many leaders in a, in a room, you know. Wasn't uh, Coach Tom Billups, wasn't he part of that setup? Tom Billups is one of my favorite people in the world. Um, he was, he was, he's a comfortably crazy guy in, in terms of that. Um, he was one of the first Americans I got to know very well. Tom lived with me for a while, actually. Okay, okay. And uh, uh, he was just, he was he was wonderful. He was incredibly fit. Um, he, uh, I, I don't think he'd be offended by saying that his his skills needed more work for, for, this, for the fitness and ability he had. Um, it just if if he played more rugby earlier, if he'd had got to see what that was like as a really young guy, he could have been true. Like, I mean, look, he captained uh, the, the the U.S. the Eagles for 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 a good few years. He coached. Uh, he was the strength conditioning coach when I started playing for the U.S. and then he was the head coach, and we would have run through a brick wall for Coach Phillips. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tom had a had a thing. We used to, we we trained in a. And this is true now, right? There's a there's a tone. Outside London, called Stains. Stains, okay. Stains, right? <laughs> I did, like so, for and for anybody that who, who whatever this podcast might get to somebody from Stains, yeah. you've got a dreadfully named Tom, okay. right? So there's no way around that fact, right? And it was a bleak, whatever it was that year. It was bleak. It was always bleak. It always rained. And every time Tuesday, Tuesday was the hard physical uh, day. The the hardest day to train was a Tuesday. And it rained every Tuesday that year. I mean, it was just appalling weather. And Tom would run out into the rain, shouting at the top of his voice, it's Tuesday, baby. You know, he was just, he was the most enthusiastic man of all time. So uh, one of my favorite guys, one of my favorite guys on the planet, and I haven't seen him for a while. So, uh, but he was, um, if I remember rightly, he was from Burlington, Ohio, if that's that's right. Yeah. That in my head. No, that could be wrong. Football yeah. country, like yeah, yeah, and but he was incredibly fit. His his, but also his his S and C, 
Um, so that for me, we talk about t- coaches and there's always great coaches, but he was a player with me. So he was my understudy in, in Quinn's. Right. Um, his technique in powerlifting was just phenomenal. So I'm like a sponge. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah you, you can do that. I need to be able to do it like you. It was, it was just, it was great. Yeah. yeah. Great guy. Brought a massive amounts of professionalism and behavior probably at that time. Whatever. Yeah. Great psychology. Um, uh, I would have said more professional than than a lot of us were, and we learned from that, you know. And uh, you know, as we went on different tours and at different times, you get to see how different people do different things. And what became very interesting, actually, was when you get to see young guys coming through the system. So. I never thought I'd play for Ireland, never mind become a professional rugby player. So that was never the thought process. That was never the drive for me at 12, 13, 14 years of age where you're trying to eat well or you're trying yeah. to train well, you're trying to hone particular skills. You're, we were trying to do all those things, but not with an end game in sight. Now you have people, uh, uh, young boys and girls can come and say, this could be a job for me, a career for me. This is what I can actually do for the rest of my life. And Tom had that already, you know, yeah. where they, and I would actually imagine that that would have been Tom's reaction to anything. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. But I need to do this harder, better, stronger, faster, quicker, you know, whatever I have to do, I was going to do it. Great discipline. Was Luke, was Luke Gross there for a little bit? Luke Gross, Luke, Luke was there. And Luke was another, um, I remember listening to a coach at one stage. He said, you can coach a guy to do many things, but you can't coach him to be six foot six. Well, Luke was six foot nine and you either were or you weren't. And he was, and, and he was raw, a big raw kid. It was, was Luke. Strong, fast, huge vertical jump, powerful, again, raw. And, um, but would make you smile all yeah. the time, actually. Yeah, yeah. Good guy. Yeah. Great guy. With a, with a bit of anger to, to the edge when you get on the floor. Uh, there, was a, there was an interesting <laughs> element of anger there, too, which we were all angry. You know, this, this wasn't, uh, that wasn't rare. And so then you went on to Captain Ireland pretty young, 24 years old? 24. I captained, I made a mistake, actually. Um, so that that's a common occurrence, by the way. But I, I made a mistake in that I captained Ireland, which wasn't a mistake. It was a, an incredible honour at 24. But I captained Quinns the, the, the same year, the following year. And I tried to do both at once. And that was too much. That was too much. And from an emotional standpoint, yeah, I don't you know what. I was a young guy living away from home, trying to come to terms with professionalism, trying to, you know, trying to cement my place in the Irish team and trying to cement my place in my club team. And uh, the game at that particular moment in time, everything was a fight. Like not on the field, off the field, everything was an argument. There was a commercial issue here. There was an intellectual property rights issue over here. Uh, can you do this? Can you not? Is there an insurance problem? We're trying to find our way in what what professional sport was. Um, we would have been far better off if we'd copied a model. So there yeah. was American models that were there. and But everybody was, I think... In retrospect, I think everybody was trying to do the right thing at the right time, trying to get their stuff done well, but it was moving at a million miles an hour. And right. so there was a lot more to being a captain than just what happened on a Saturday afternoon. So I I've, I got stuck in the middle of it because A, I was, I, I'd been working in business and B, I was interested in the ins and outs of how these things were done. 
Um, I probably made a few more fights uh, than were necessary, but you know, I I don't mind that now, and I and I, I don't I didn't mind it then either actually, but there was an awful lot more in it, and so I felt under pressure with the club and under pressure with Ireland. Not a pressure. I did. I actually didn't mind it. It's good stress that you're, you know, that you're Stretches. high performing and stretching. But I never. There was no. Um, uh, we're talking forty-four weeks of the year, non-stop, non-stop, and non-stop, and picking up some injuries and having uh, having a legacy of a bad shoulder that that pretty much was with me for my whole career. I had it operated on a lot of times. Um, uh, you know, it, you're always trying to rush to get back then. And it wasn't just to get back to play, to get back because there might have been an issue or it was there was a lacking in leadership. And look, I would say this to every young captain um, that uh, I'm trying to think of who the quote is. This is an, an Emerson quote that you have to learn from other people's mistakes because you can't make them all yourself. Um, there isn't enough time to make them all yourself. But um, love that. I try to do everything as a young captain because I didn't know any better and so you, what you learn in captaincy uh, as things move on and in leadership as things move on, move on is you just need to rely on as many people as you possibly can and you, maybe you're the arbiter at the end and maybe you are the final decision maker but you have to um, build a sense of trust within players that they can make the decision and know that you have their back for it and, but also that you share the load and uh, I didn't share enough of the load myself actually and so that would have been a flaw that I had which was a flaw I rectified um, uh, towards the latter end of my career. Yeah, would I, I still find myself making that mistake on occasion as we, you know, building another business here with the Free Jacks and we've got a great team, but just making sure that you give them opportunity to, to really grow and dig deep into their roles and having clarity on their roles is so important, but, but giving them that opportunity to fail and to succeed, right? Well, yeah, and if you fail, fail fast. You don't yeah. want to be failing over 12 months. You, you yeah. make a decision and make a bit of a balls up and it happens in a week or two weeks and rectify it. That's that's yeah. okay. And But it is about giving people an opportunity, but it's also about that level of communication. So you need to understand your team. You need to understand what makes them tick, what makes them, uh, what is their purpose for being there. It isn't always the same, actually. And there may be different things and uh, family things and emotional things that make them react differently and when you're 24 you're running at things at a million miles an hour you're not right. really taking in all that information but you do take it in more and I have to say that for, for business and things subsequently the, the elements and the failures that you have in sport um, like I always say we have to be very comfortable when we talk about sport sport they, they say the, the Ian Paisley quote that it's not life or death it's much more important than that it's not that it's not yeah. that sport is pretty irrelevant except for the fact it gives joy to a huge amount of yeah, people yeah it's the business of joy yeah and so for that it's a, it's a really so you have to kind of enjoy it and you have to see what's going on but ultimately it isn't okay the business of it is is important, but the actual the, the the expression of it, you have to enjoy it. And Experience, yeah. And I, I look, I enjoyed it without a shadow of a doubt. And uh, I do have a touch of regret. I wish I enjoyed it more, and yeah. um, and I wish I won more, of course. And maybe both of those are are flip side of of a coin. Is that because you were going so fast to, at that age, just to stop and say, "All right, this is a once in a lifetime experience." 
Yeah, I, I you know, I, I think, I think you, like you know, in, in, in a sports team, you're a very lucky man if you're in a team that's a winning team, that's, yeah. uh, that's, uh, that's a championship winning team, not just a, a, a better win than loss. Um, that happens rarely. And if you're very lucky, you're in a team that does that many times, that's great. But actually, you should appreciate the journey to that victory and that victory in of itself. I don't think you should gloss over that fact of winning something or take that for granted. I think that's that's a pretty good feeling to have. Absolutely. And so you came out of that age, amateur to, to uh, professional, the game's moving fast, now dollars are starting to come into it. Are we starting to see the ramifications today of that based on the injuries and the volume of play? And is that what's playing into, you know, some of the things that we're hearing in regards to class action lawsuits and all those pieces? Um, I remember reading in, is it the, there's an annual, uh, the, I can't remember who sponsored it, but there's an annual of American, the best American sports writing. And I'd say maybe, 10, 11, 12 years ago, one of the years, there was a huge amount of concussion in, yeah. in all the different sports. I remember in, in ice hockey and different parts of it and, and looking and reading through all that saying, God, that's very interesting. How does it reflect to our game? Yeah, not so much, actually. And, and trying to understand where, where it was. Um, I think professionalism has, there's a lot of unintended consequences that come with that. Of course there are, there has to be. Um, I still think uh, I, I think we'd be foolhardy to say it's a very safe game because it's not very safe um, I do think there are changes that have to be made to the laws I think there have been changes already and it's how they play out over a period of time I'm uncomfortable with certain parts of it I really am and um, I wouldn't have had a huge regard for my own safety when I played. Um, I think I'm pretty fortunate how I how I went through it. I had a few concussions, definitely. I had a few more, I'm sure, subconcussive events. Um, uh, I think if you were to challenge me today and say, would I change anything? I'd be really struggling to say that I'd change it. But I, we had a slightly different system then. And no. there were no HIA protocols. We had we had a couple of really strong doctors in Ireland, um, where they'd say if you got a bang and you were concussed, and you'd say, "Well, yeah, but I'm fine." I said, "Of course you are, absolutely fine." Off the field, you're not playing for three weeks, twenty-two days. It was at that stage. Yeah. It didn't matter what you said. It just you know. But um, so I look back on that and say, "Yeah, I thought we were okay with a lot of those." So I'm sure we got lots of bangs to our head and. Um, I'm hoping that there's no um, downside to that for me coming down the line as I really worry about the guys that there has been a downside for for, for it. Um, I think the responsibility of the game is to try and make the game safer. I don't think it detracts from the game. It's far cleaner than it was from 20 That's years it. ago or 30 years ago in particular. Yeah. It's far, far cleaner than it was. The size of the players have got bigger the rugby league defensive setup has meant there's less, a, less space, yeah. Far less, far less space. Um, the things I don't like. So if we if we go that way instead, uh, I don't like the jackal. I don't like a guy going in over on top. And of, that's how I made rug. my living was being able to do that. Just yeah, I don't, I don't like you. No, no, no. I don't, I don't like, I don't like that thing. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I just think you. it ex- it exposes. It's dangerous. Nobody ever runs at somebody with the back of their neck. You yeah. know, that's yeah. so 
I'm not comfortable with that. I've never been comfortable with the uh, huge number of subs. I've never, I've actually never liked that. I, it was yeah. interesting because someone challenged me on it. I went back and I found a, new, a newspaper article I had done 20 years ago to say that I, and I'd likened it to a boxing match where if you have a 10 round match and after eight rounds, I have you where I want you, right? You've been really big and strong and bigger than me, but I've actually lasted. I'm now in a good place and you bring on a sub to fight the last two rounds for you. That's yeah. what I feel like the front row. Great comparison. Um, and, and so I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not, a, I, I think you should have subs, but I think your players should be able to play for 80 minutes. What do you, walk me through that. Cause that was happening all when I was a player that, you know, every year it seemed to be there and it'd be an additional sub added to what we were allowed to do. Um, you know, kind of so at the end there, it was 22. And, you know, as, when I became a coach, it became 23. What was the impetus for that? Wasn't it player safety? Wasn't that the uh, I, I, I don't know if it was. Yes. Um, I think it could have been part of it. So pro- so the, the original line was there was no subs. Right. So even if you got injured, you couldn't replace somebody. Which is a wrong incentive structure. Well, yes. Right. <laughs> then, then you had, if there was somebody injured, you could replace them. Then you had people feigning injury, right? So these were in amateur days, right? So, and that, so that's right. No, not the bloodgate. Long before that. Okay, so so feigning injury to, to, to go off. So that obviously was it just hadn't been fully thought through. Um, to then having five or six subs. And so it just started moving. It was 21, I think, then 22, then 23, you know. So it started moving. I don't mind having eight subs, by the way. Fine. But you should only be able to put on two or three of them. And if actually the, the, the fact is that somebody else is injured and you need somebody else in, unlucky. Yeah. And our, part of the problem for me, the level of collisions are, if you have a guy who's 280 pounds, unbelievably powerful and fast, I think he'd rather be 250 pounds in the last 80 minutes. You know, I mean, not under the present rules, but if, if that's what he had to do, you could do it. So I think over two or three years time. So I played one, I played one season at 255 pounds, right? Which was very heavy for me. I was normally um, 230, 238. That's a big change. So it's a big change. I, I was 230 to 238 was that my... In, was that muscle weight that that came on? Uh, it was muscle and it was food and it was uh, injury and I got used to the idea of being heavier and I would actually bring my weight up and down at different times. I found out what my optimum weight was, was maybe 235. Right? Right. But I played one year 250, 255. I didn't finish an international match. And it just wasn't right. I was much stronger in the scrum. It was great. Yeah. But I couldn't get that weight around the field for 80 minutes. And I did not want to go off. So um, I know guys go off after 60 minutes or 55 minutes, and that's fine. Now, I'm just not a big fan of that. I'd rather you were able to stay there for 80. Now, for us to do that, we can't just say we're not having subs. You have to have a few guys have to do it, and you have to do it over two or three years to try and limit down that number. But I actually think it's a fair way of doing it too. So, what, what do you think the future of the game is of rugby? Um, I don't know. I think we're in a really strange place. Uh, we're in a strange commercial place um, with private equity firms taking um, pieces of of the action. Um, that's a bit fractured. Some of the leagues are. I mean, we've the Pro 14s becoming Pro 16. It's bringing South Africa into it. Right. 
I, I, like if ever COVID has shown us something, it's that this constant traveling is, you know, maybe not be the best thing in the world. And um, I look, I, I can't square that up. Yeah. In terms of player welfare, as an extra number of games, well, actually, we're going for now for three weeks to South Africa in the middle of the season. I mean, I think the game needs to become smaller, not bigger. Yeah, local, grow locally. What, like, is that a, is that a, would that be fun for the fans? Is that a, is there a rivalry there? You know, if Munster's playing, you know, the Sharks, is that something that is attractive? Um, uh, look, I, I, I've a, I don't have any agenda in this, actually. Yeah. I have a personal wish, is what I'd love to see, is I would love to see a British and Irish league, a Lions league. Yeah. England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Wales clubs, maybe playing in two conferences. You'd always have the derbies. You keep all those historical things together. Yeah. You, you'd, you'd have Munster against Leicester, would be twenty eight thousand, uh, awesome. no pro- no problem. Yeah. Um, you'd have big games all the time. You would get an awful lot out of it. You'd be able to um, make the Lions tour sacrosanct because all the players would fit into that Lions tour. That makes big sense, but. Um, uh, one group of clubs own the Premier League another group own the Pro 14 near the twain shall meet and that's part of the issue that we have And but rugby at the present moment in time is doing everything in its power to survive right. because COVID has I think rugby was under pressure before before COVID-19 but since then everything is using all its reserves it's leaning on the governments to look after them as much as they can um, they need to get people in watching matches. Tickets and it's like the, the the basics of sports entertainment. You know, ticket purchases, food and beverage, merchandise. Yeah. So, dollars aren't so big, right, that it overrides that? No, media, media dollars do enough, by the way, but not enough to rectify uh, what's happening at the moment. So what we have, at the, if you take uh, all the provinces in Ireland at this moment – are negotiating 50% of their player contracts. It's tough. Well, it's very tough when you don't know exactly when you're going to have a fan in again, and you don't know exactly how much money is in the coffers. And so you can say, if we, if we forget about the emotional side of sport, you say from an absolute business, is it honest to give a three-year contract to someone if you don't know the money's coming in. Yeah. So the unions are underwriting a lot of that and they're getting themselves in a position to do it. But that's it's a tricky time for the sport. So, But I would still say rugby is in the baby stage of being a professional sport. Um, this is a global issue, not just a rugby issue that's on at the present moment in time. But I think there is an opportunity for the game. But... I think if everybody keeps pushing the opportunity to be bigger and more competitions and more widespread, for me, I think that's the negative. I think it needs to be made a little bit smaller to tidy up the season so that there's a defined number of games in a year, not this constant um, treadmill of, of competitions and players. And, and, and I think that makes it very tough. We mentioned this earlier, but this is one of those situations where you have to be doing less to make a better product, right? I think so. Look, I'm interested in what you're doing um, in in America. I think it's it's uh, you've seen what everything the lie of the land everywhere else, and you say, right. well, we tried little bits here, and that kind of works, and we could do a little bit over here. That maybe work. You already have a decent 
uh, collegiate system that gives you a sense of players that are coming through, how that fits in around is is a cracking route for you to go. Yeah. And, and look, I'm a huge fan of trying to promote your own. So I'll give a great example. I went back to Munster in 99 from Quinns. I took a sabbatical for one year for a whole... Uh, an extraordinary, unusual series of events meant I was able to go back and play for Munster. And we had a guy there, John Langford from from Australia. He was a big, tall guy. Um, I would have said he was he had very good rugby skills, like really good line-out skills. Um, but he wasn't big and powerful like he'd knock you out of the way. He wasn't... Um, um, very fast but he was constant he was ubiquitous it doesn't matter basketball type of player oh he was he was but but his attitude was the best attitude I'd come across bar none best training attitude himself and Tom Billups would would have would have loved it right he was um, but all the players around him picked up that this is the way you're supposed to train that this is what you're supposed to do and and uh, these are the things you can achieve if you're not the most you're not the fastest most talented rugby player and he wasn't he just was an incredible professional you know and had a really good career and he was he is revered in Munster for what he gave to Munster now the reason I mention him is that Munster team was 95% born and bred in Munster and there was a few guys from the outside you know, two players or three players or whatever were from the outside in that whole wider group of 50 players. But if you have the right guys, they don't just play for you as a team. They also inculcate their values onto the players around you. That's what you're looking for, for the foreign guys. So for the foreign guys that you bring in, that's what you you need. You need them to be coaches as much uh, to have a decent set of values and to show you what it's like. Yeah, to set the the behavior norms for you know everybody yeah. else. I think that's we're in a very unique position because this is not the the union itself in, in in USA rugby is not one in a position where this is top down, you know, mandating everything. They're a great partner for us, uh, you know, so we're able to kind of build from scratch and you know use best case practices from American sports. Yeah, well, kind of our observations of what's happening around the world. I think in some of those aspects, we've really gotten it right. In some of those aspects, we, we've got some learning to do. Uh, but that is that is exactly right. You know, there's no relegation. It's very much a, you know, a partnership between all the franchises that work really hard to build an entertainment product. Um, and, and there's some macro factors happening in rugby that you've hit on a little bit, but th- there's an influx of really high quality players around the world that don't necessarily have a home, right? Because of what's happened in Ireland over the last two decades in terms of academy development systems, there's a lot of highly, in in other countries, there's a lot of highly skilled players around who can really um, play a great game of rugby and that need a home, right? But if you can give them a chance, you know, what you're you're hoping for, I know this from, from business, you'll have guys say, well, if you're a team player, um, I want to have you in my business. But if you're a rugby player in particular, they they really do because there is that idea of the things that work together. Um, now, all sports have that to varying degrees. Uh, we talk about rugby because we know it. It's not a slight in anybody else, but we know that it does have them. Um, young guys who are given a chance are incredibly loyal, you know, yeah. and and they give back uh, and then some, which is you know, which is which is a great way of having it, you know. 
which I love that. So, so team culture, I mean, you know, you, you've seen it with Ireland, seen it with Quinn's, seen it with Munster, uh, seen it with the Lions. Um, how, how do we best build team culture? It's fresh start here. You know, we're really, you know, this is, this podcast is really so much about us learning, um, from others. You know, how do we best go about that? Yeah, I, it, I, it all comes down to standards. So for me, I used to make it very, very simple. The standard of training. What was your standard of training? So, I would say Americans have had, I coached one American team uh, on holidays in Starkville, Mississippi, would you believe? Um, how did that, how did that, wait, how did that happen? I, my, my best friend, my next door neighbor here. Okay. We grew up together, a guy called David Leeson. He's Professor David Leeson. He is a professor in American history. Okay. Right, so he got a, he's awesome. got his, he got a degree in London. He went and did his master's in Starkville. Um, and then he did his doctorate in Armstrong in uh, Savannah. Okay. So, okay. Um, and he's written books on the Irish yeah. and the American Civil War and stuff like that. But my best friend, my next door neighbor, we grew up together. So um, I went over just to, I wanted to see America. And I went around the, the Deep South, which was which was fantastic. Yeah. And actually going with him, who, who it was, I, I was 23 or 24. Right, oh, awesome. and and we're going around, and everybody wanted to meet him because all the old people who uh, he he got to know everybody because they all um, were talking the, about their yeah. Irish. Well, yeah. they're talking about their Irish heritage. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we'd go and we like we called to uh, to cemeteries um, to check different names and graves. Obviously, this is part of a holiday, but it was fine. You know, we <laughs> he's great friends, so we had great fun with it. You know, but. Um, uh, yeah, so I, um, it was funny. I, I remember because I was, I was coming back from an injury and I was coaching the guys. And if, if the, the ex American football guys, if they hit you, my God, you stayed hit. You yes, know, that was, yeah. you were hit for good and glory. Yeah. But you'd sidestep them and you try and get them to the sense of nuance, right? So rugby is a game of laws. Um, they're not rules, they're laws. Um, it is a game of nuance. It's incredibly complicated the way it's being refed at the moment. I think it's too complicated. I have to say. How, how difficult is it for the ref to ref the breakdown? I just don't. Well, that's so difficult. Well, I, look, I worked for the BBC for for twenty years. Yeah, and I would say depend. If, if, and I'd, sometimes I'd go to a ground and I'd put a hat on over my head, and you listen to the, the one side supporters here and the other side in over here. And they'd all be shouting at the referee for the same thing. And they're all right. Yeah. Because in each ruck, there's eight infringements. It's so hard. So it's almost impossible. So um, so there, you're trying to get to the spirit of the game. Spirit of the game sorts you out. So there's a flow to it. Yes, he did go off his feet, but there was a reason behind it. So the referees kind of have to be all seeing and all knowing. And that, that makes quote. it... A, the spirit of the game sorts you out. That was brilliant. I love yeah. That. But, and if we then talk about camaraderie and teamwork and building a team it is getting to that sense of things that yes you can't give out to people all the time there is a bit of there is a bit more into the idea there's different ways of looking at things um, and it's trying to get a whole team into the flow of what that team is like that's for me that's a big thing so if you end up with 25 guys who think this is how we play and we're all we understand it 
We, it's, and there's a flow to it and we understand it we get to, then you have a great chance that's the building of a team the, when you bring somebody new in does that change the way the team is it only does if you change every little bit of the flow for that team yeah. so those changes and they do happen and that's how a team gets an awful lot better so, so if you're asking my, my view I'm not a coach okay. my, my believer my, my belief is that you try and play highest common denominator, not lowest. So when the hooker comes on from Gary Owen and he does it Gary Owen, everybody has to be on the same page with it. Well, you're going to have to figure it out pretty soon, you know. But but that. That I, but that idea of pushing the standard so that everybody's everybody's comfortable. So if I was to give you an example of a player, not any player, but the difference between a club player and an international player and maybe even a Lions player and they're different is the amount of things they don't have to think of club player has to think of quite a lot worry about this that he he knows enough about the game say he's at 50% that he doesn't have to think of an international player mightn't have to think for 80% of the time he's able to deal he knows that he's able to deal with it a Lions mightn't have to think 90% of the time so I think you're trying to bring that level of preparation, repetition, understanding to the highest level you can. And so when you're under the most pressure, you're falling back to 75%, not back to 45%. Yeah, and it's, and so you've the, simplified it. You've absolutely. Simplified. And the more players that you have that take that view, but you have to give them scope for independent thought. That's the other thing. You know, nobody, I, like some of the coaches that are around now tell the players what they're going to do in five phases time. Yeah, I think that's fine, but I wouldn't want to do it for every single minute of the game. Right. You know, and that's, I know in, in a lot of American sports, everything is done. This is the way it is. Yeah. For me, that's where rugby has to be different. I think you can script an awful lot, but leave something for individuality. Yeah, I completely agree. And, there's, you know, you see in American football, I mean, there's certain, the, the spread option gives... It's a structure, but then there's options within the structure, and I think that's probably where rugby has gone over the last 15 years. Yeah. Very curious what happens next. You know, the defenses are in such a strong position by rules, by strategy right now, by tactics. You know, what is that next step on the attack side that's really going to open it up? Yeah, that's interesting, and it's whether we're going to have changes in the rules so that there are less players in the field. Yeah. Uh, they're going to resist that because it makes it very similar to rugby league and they don't want to do that but um, but we would like to see more space in the field so for me the easiest thing to do is to get players lighter um, having to and, and tiring, tiring. But not, not yeah but not tiring to the point of where they're in big danger but tiring to the point of where there's no space yeah it just becomes a slightly more aerobic sport you know at the end yeah. of the day, not so much anaerobic you know at the 70th minute still with those with those substitutions you know you played in an era where the driving mall in midfield was still fairly active and you don't see that in phase play at all is that because of refereeing is that because of tactical choice uh, it's well it, again the law changed so once the law changes a little bit so you could have the ball in the back of a mall and drive forever and start again you never had to stop you could keep going you could keep going you could keep going if it collapsed didn't matter you had the ball because you were going forward that changed that if it, a mall collapsed it went to the team that was stopping them 
So every now and then there's a law change, small change, and then how do coaches deal with that over the next three or four years? To and then you have to change it again, and then you. So it, it's it's a constantly growing game. But for me, too much of it is it's it's making it almost too difficult for the referee. And one thing I will say: the the referee has to be the final arbiter. He's the guy. Yeah. So there has to be respect to the referee. Yeah. And, you know, it's the guy or the gal who makes those choices. And, again, that's in the spirit of the game. And I absolutely love that. But just talking about that evolution and invention, you see more of those um, tap penalties this year, which has been cool to see at the five meter, as opposed to just the line out. That's been a cool, nice little. In- but I loved I always loved that. And I was a devil for doing them myself, right, which, of course, I shouldn't be doing them as a, as a, as a hooker. But um, uh, the, one of the elements I love is things happen. We'll see things this year that had gone out of fashion but were really common 25 years ago. So we're going to see them again this year. So you're reimagining things that have happened in the past because they were great in the past. Yeah. And they stopped being great because other people were able to defend them. I remember we had a we ended up having a system of lineouts in just before I finished. We had 250 lineout variations. That's crazy. It's brilliant, right? And it's crazy because if you were to look at what we had today and what we had next week, they'd be entirely different. So what we'd say, these are our options. And we'd go and we'd say, we're going to try and do these 20 today. These are going to be our options today. But next week, it might be a different 20. So we were incredibly, yeah. yeah, but incredibly hard to figure out. Well, what, yeah. well this is what they do in that situation. Bill Belichick, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, situational yeah. football. That's awesome. yes, yes. So players, you did a fantastic job transitioning. You know, kind of being a player and then having a career. You know, what's the recommendation for our players? How do they make that? happen you know because especially now players that haven't they're not at the bank you know all day and then coming at night to practice i mean they're they're trying to become professional players and professional players and probably not making creating wealth in that process like some of the american big four you know big four athletes uh, big four sport athletes so what's kind of advice in that regard how to well, I don't see that in the in the in the near future that they're going to create that level of wealth. That's not that's not there. It's not it's not big enough game in, in that scene. Even in in Ireland or the UK, they can do very well, um, but it's not that it's not that wealth. Yeah, um, wealth is measured in a variety of different ways. By the way, so one is financial, the other one is health. Um, there also is the camaraderie and the association. Absolutely. There also is using every single contact that you can have. And be shameless about that because uh, sport is notoriously short-lived and you have a long life to live after it and you need to do other things. But I would, again, I'd be a sponge and I'd be telling kids, not kids, men, you need to read constantly. You need to see what's going on in the world constantly. You need to study constantly if you can. Um, and especially within uh, within rugby, there is an opportunity to be able to study. And in Ireland, the vast majority of players in academies are doing university courses, doing degree courses. Right. Um, and it's essential because the recognition is that you could stop at 21, but you will stop at 31 or 32. You know, you might go, a few outliers might go a bit further, but you're going to stop at some stage. So for me, I worked all the way through 
playing rugby because I liked working. So there wasn't a huge transition for me. I had loads of things to do. Some of them fell by the wayside. Some of them didn't. Um, I was pretty well organized for it and it was still hard. And um, it's it's the perception of, I, I would always describe it, I can get in the door of any office, you know, but I need to do something when I go in there. Yes. You know, so hey, I'm here. Yeah, here I'm here, lads. I, whatever you need, like I'm, I'm ready for, you know. And um, I remember talking to a business. They were talking about a high-profile player that was had retired. And they said, okay, we're going to get him in. I said, what are you paying him? He's in as an intern. He said, we're going to pay him um, the intern. I said, okay, are you going to use him entirely as an intern? And he said, well, he explained that. I said, if you're using him for show pony, if you're the putting marketing. him up to say yeah. that I've that, I said, you're going to have to pay him a commercial rate for that. Yeah. Pay him what he should be paid as an intern as well. That's his intern's job. But this is different. Really? Two separate and, things. And two very separate things. And, but it becomes very hard for the first decision that's made after retiring as to yeah. what your next job is and what you can be. The vast majority of of guys who retire say I'm going to take six months to figure out and that actually is um, shorthand for I'm in a total panic and I've no idea what I'm going to do and so I remember saying that I was asked when I retired uh, I'm in work on Monday morning you know awesome. I, have a PR, I have a PR company I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm in work Monday morning that's what I'm going to do uh, it was a lie because I took a month off actually and stayed <laughs> in Australia but okay in a, in a month and a Monday yeah. and um and I worked with the BBC and, and a variety of, of different things at different times. And I, I think the transition is tough because even if you're playing sport, it's privileged. If you're playing professional sport, it's privileged. People see it as being privileged. You will get some support. And if you're a, big, a bigger name, and this is the unfairness of it. If you're a bigger name, you're likely to get more support and you may need it less than the lesser name right. who, need, who needs it. But, but again, I think study is essential or skills are essential. And but I wouldn't, yeah, relationships. And I wouldn't underestimate the discipline. I wouldn't underestimate the teamwork and the ability to, to be loyal as a teammate. That is a very valuable asset for any business. But there is a transition you're going to have to do to make that work in an office environment, say, or, or whatever. Um, equally well, the communication skills that you have as a sportsman are essential in nearly every business. So when you so, went into your first job interview, did you repeat your lions, um, the living with lions 22nd? I, I, I do that most days. I try not to curse when I go into business meetings, if at all possible. There's a lot of beeps in, in that particular, in restaurant, that particular like, one. All right, yeah. today. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, exactly. And, and you're going to make it effing well. Yeah. No, no, that doesn't, that doesn't work. But um, no, it's, it's, but I will say just for one thing for communication, communication is, uh, isn't just talking, it's listening. Sports people listen because they have to listen because they have an appraisal, a public appraisal every single Saturday. So if they're not listening and learning constantly, they're not really, they're not getting there. These are traits that 
every 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 single workforce wants to have in their staff. I'm, I'm sorry, what did you say? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I just so so there. I mean, they're the things that are important. So I love um, if 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 you can, but look, you, I think you have to study um, and or. Or whatever else it is, or talk to all the guys. The guys have a there's a feel good factor always about rugby. Yeah, there's people that say, "God, we've shared something together." So, I, I would say that to every single guy who plays rugby, and they'll always say, "Well, I didn't play at your level." I said, "Who who cares about that? If you played, you know, we kind of know we've we've something in common already. Now you understand it. You're part of it. You've worked together." There you go. And learn how to not be raw rocks. It's not like a lot of sports in the United States where you have time to catch your breath and you have a coach who can come in and inject some calmness to a situation, but you actually have to get something across to somebody else, 14 other people, in you know less than 14 seconds, sometimes two seconds, and everybody has to be on the same page, whether yeah. it's the right decision or not, and then people adjust from that, which is um, you know fairly unique in a lot of ways, is being able to make those decisions uh, and adapt under pressure and then communicate those thoughts. And I, that's why I always find with rugby players in particular, men and women, very entrepreneurial because they can kind of make those adaptations, which is pretty cool. Well, if someone makes a decision on a rugby field, what do you do? Throw your hands up in the air because you don't like it. You react. You have to yeah. You have to, You have have to. to win that ball. He was supposed to bloody pass it to me, yeah, but if he has it, now, gonna... <laughs> now he's about to score. I want to go. I want to get that. Yeah. <laughs> now I have to support it. God damn it. Yes, get through. Buddy, we're going to do a quick rapid fire if that works for you. Shoot. Uh, if you could redo life, what is the big, biggest thing you would change? Oh, God, that's an amazing one. Um, I'm going to hold that one for a while. I don't know the answer to that one. No, no problem. Who in rugby do you think could fight a grizzly without any weapons and potentially win? Oh, without, without any weapons, Olivier Merle. French second row. Okay. He was part grizzly, I think. <laughs> okay, well, awesome. Love that. Well, any book you've read lately or, you know, favorite book that you've come across? Uh, what I'm reading at the present moment in time, which is probably appropriate, What's Wrong With Rights? That's good. Yeah. Like that. uh, my favorite book is a uh, pop philosophy book, The Art of Travel. The Art of Travel. Who's about that by? Alain de Botton, uh, English, French. Um, anyway, very interesting, different, different perspective. I love that. I'll check it out. Uh, favorite piece, piece of merchandise or kit, and what size are you? Uh, I'm How extra. One of these bad boys, the old school. This is like heavy- oh, that is proper old school. I, I'll tell you what. This is very interesting. I know this is supposed to be rapid fire. I was always extra large. But then they got the figure hugging ones in the last World Cup. I was yeah. I was three XL. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid. Vacuum to- vacuum pack didn't really work for me. I'm afraid to wear those new the new styles because it's like my dad bought. It's like it doesn't yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll get you hooked up with some free Jack swag. Uh, something you've never done but would like to try. There's not a huge amount I haven't tried actually. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that sounds entirely <laughs> wrong. But something I'd like to do, I don't know. I'm I'm not that sort of envy person. I have to say, I'm not. Uh, I never thought I'd ski. Have you? I, yes, I have, and I have. Uh, on the first morning, I, I, we were meeting people for lunch. I brought the mountain um, down with me. 
uh, I'm not aesthetically pleasing on the eye skiing, but I'm I'm able. I'm yeah. uh, I haven't skied in the states, so there's one for you. Okay, so we got to get you over here next winter. That's, then yes, that has to happen. Get you up to our place, and I'm just we have twin boys, they're three, and they just learned how to ski, so it was a big moment for us. So now the whole family can ski together. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's uh, my 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 boys are far better than I am um, <laughs> my wife is better actually everybody is better than I am but uh, I'm fine I'll have a cut okay, we'll get the whole crew over and this is going to just bring it full circle and kind of ask everybody this if you were running the free jacks kind of day to day what would you be focusing on something that we haven't mentioned actually I would want them to I would want everybody to have fun I love it yeah you did say we were in the business of fun yeah, yeah, you said it. I didn't say it, so I, I wasn't listening to you. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Who's having fun? <laughs> I just, and I, yeah, I, I think that's that gets forgotten at times. I love that, it. That, that it's a sport. Yeah, thousand percent correct. We're in the business of joy and hope, and I, yeah, getting people together. And that's for us to grow in the United States to grow rugby. The festival, the getting people together, is a really, really important piece. Um, you know, because the experience of being around people who are committed to the ethos, the spirit of the game is really important. You know, I think that's a really key competitive advantage for rugby compared to, you know, traditional American sports, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Ladies and gentlemen, Keith Wood, fantastic to connect. Thank you so much. Great to see you again. Okay. It was a pleasure. Thank you.